Hello and welcome to another episode of Consumer, the UP podcast of the Consumer Choice Center. As always, I'm your host, Bill Words, with Billy Joel's pressure fading out in the background here on episode 134 on November 2nd, 2023. Uh, we got uh, two stories for you this week. Uh, still a bit on a slowdown here with the podcast series Fun Police, which uh, I played the trailer last week. Coming up right there in about two weeks, November 15. November 15 is the uh, the launch of episode one. So uh, do go on uh, whatever podcast player you're on right now and you can type in Fun Police and you can follow and also check the notifications uh, so you never miss another episode. Uh, as soon as that's available, you can also rate, give us a five-star rating so more people uh, see it, recommend it to friends and family, uh, as you do with this podcast as well. And uh, while we're at it, might as well play the trailer for you once again. Did you vape today or drink? Did you have a beer, a glass of wine, place a bet or eat chocolate? There are activists out there who believe that you are hurting yourself and that for the sake of the greater good, you should be banned from doing it. These activists are neo-prohibitionists. They don't believe in your right to choose, and they have big budgets to lobby governments to restrict your lifestyle. And their actions have real consequences. Prohibition of, of something, whether it's riding without a seatbelt, whether it's selling cigarettes, this creates new opportunities for citizens to interact with the police. Garner, who had been accused of selling cigarettes illegally on New York's Staten Island, seen here being taken down by NYPD officer Daniel Pantaleo. So this Orwellian-sounding FCTC is about benefiting the black market and making poor people pay. I listen to people saying, oh, we don't want to tax the poor. Well, we want the poor to live longer so that they can get an education and enjoy life. This group took public money to create a pseudoscientific amalgamation of studies with low scientific validity to lecture you about having more than two beers a week. I think anybody here can see through the nonsense. Fun Police, a five-part Consumer Choice Center original podcast, uncovering the prohibitionist movements seeking to ban it all. New episodes dropping weekly wherever you get your podcasts. So two stories for you this week. Uh, first off, we are talking about uh, Australia and the EU, uh, where a trade deal just fell through uh, this week. And introducing uh, my new colleague, Egle Markevichute. She is uh, the head of digital policy uh, going forward here at the Consumer Choice Center. She was previously in the Lithuanian government, and she tells us all about it in the segment so first off, uh, Australia walks away from a trade deal with the European Union. This has been on the negotiating table for a while, and it fell through just this week uh, in Osaka, Japan. And we'll let uh, Australian TV give you the details. A $100 billion free trade deal over Australian meat and other products with the European Union has fallen through, with Australia walking away from negotiations. Live to Canberra and political reporter Rob Scott. Rob, why did the talks collapse? Well, and these negotiations have been dragging on since 2018, but the government was optimistic that it could seal the lucrative deal. The Trade Minister, Don Farrell, held talks with his European counterparts on the sidelines of the G7 Trade Ministers' meeting in Japan overnight. 
but he ended up walking away for the second time in just three months with the same sticking points from the last meeting in July unable to be resolved. Now, specifically, Australia wants better access to the EU market for our beef and our sheep meat, the Europeans unwilling to give ground there. They also want uh, name protections for their products, which would force Australian producers to change the names of goods, including feta, parmesan and prosecco. With no movement on either of those, the stalemate Quote, not good enough, end of quote. That was Australian Trade Minister Don Farrell's verdict on the trade deal on an offer from the European Union before he walked away from the negotiating table for the second time in four months. Uh, so Brussels had dispatched... Uh, Executive Vice President Valdis Sombrovskis and Agriculture Commissioner Janusz Wojciechowski from Poland uh, in an attempt to finally get this trade deal through. Um, a trade deal that is very similar to the one that uh, Wellington, uh, this is uh, New Zealand, signed recently. Uh, but Australia's farm lobby had said that a deal such as the one that was signed with New Zealand would not be acceptable. Now, of course, walking away from the trade deal once again certainly won't enthrall Brussels to, uh, to offer another renegotiation. John Clark, senior official at the Agricultural Department of the European uh, Commission, uh, he uh, writes on X, myopic Australia. My guess is that this free trade agreement won't be available again for a long time. I understand the EU side tripsed, uh, that's a word uh, you don't really hear very often, all the way to Japan prepared to do the final deal. Just to be told again, forget it. Well, they will not forget that. And that is what John Clark is uh, tweeting there on X. Uh, and uh, certainly seems to be the echoes that is coming out of the European Commission there. Uh, but certainly a loss on both sides because the agricultural sectors in both Australia and the European Union would significantly benefit if uh, a free trade agreement were to be signed. To the extent that even the representatives at Copa Cogeca, uh, even though they do say we don't want to have a deal at any cost, did seem, uh, did seem excited by the opportunity of being able to export to the Australian market with a couple of addendums, especially those that come out of Italy and France, with Italy and France saying that things such as champagne, prosecco and parmesan uh, should not be allowed to be called as such in Australia if they're produced in Australia. Uh, and that is an endless battle that we're not only having with our trade partners, we even have it on the uh, in the eternal market, um, where uh, you know specific types of tomatoes uh, are not to be allowed, not allowed to be called that. Um, I really hope they don't extend that to specific dishes. Uh, otherwise, uh, you know, the amount of goulash that is being served should probably be uh, under under scrutiny by the Hungarian part in the uh, in the European Commission. Uh, so, in any case, it seems that over um, somewhat technicalities and to other extend the amount of quotas and the amount of uh, levels of uh, exports and imports being allowed and that this uh, trade deal has unfortunately uh, fallen through. And it stands in stark contrast with other trade partners of Australia. Um, uh, Politico writes, uh, quote, Australia has bigger fish to fry. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese this weekend heads to China to meet President Xi uh, for the first visit by an Australian leader since 2016, marking a thaw in previously chilly relations. And then this is a very important part. China accounts for 27% of Australia's bilateral trade, three times as much as the European Union, end of quote. And uh, this is a similar situation than what we see with the Mercosur-EU free trade agreement, which has been dragging on for quite a while. Um, now, you could say COVID uh, happened in between, but ultimately these negotiations haven't really moved for forward as much. And what often happens is that the EU puts in sort of an, a 
appendix, uh, uh, um, uh, addendum, amendment, uh, additional letter for Mercosur. It was an additional letter that was sent to uh, to Brasilia and Buenos Aires, where they said, "Well, look, you know, uh, you know, we have this agreement that we that we ironed out, but here's uh, something we would add, like to add, and this is a letter that you know ought to have somewhat legal value in some sense, in which we say that your deforestation since the beginning of the negotiation uh, has been has been going too far for our tastes." And of course, uh, that is no way to, uh, to, to, to negotiate with those trade partners, uh, which is why China um, is definitely in a much stronger position to negotiate with those trade partners. And the, you know, the global commission that uh, Ursula von der Leyen promised when she started uh, doesn't seem to be really taking shape. So next up, it's my conversation with Egle Markiewicz-Schutte. She is the new head of digital affairs here at the Consumer Choice Center. And... Uh, yeah, take it away. So we have our new colleague here, Egle Markevichute. Uh, she is from Lithuania. And if you follow us on social media, you've already uh, seen her name pop up. She's going to be the new head of digital and innovation policy here at the Consumer Choice Center. And I wanted to take some time today to uh, tell you folks uh, about Egle and have Egle present to uh, to lay out uh, what she did previously, what she's going to be doing at the Consumer Choice Center, and also some of the priorities that we try to focus on going forward uh, with Egle uh, having joined the team. So first off, Egle, um, how did I do on the pronunciation of your name? It was great. Hi, Bill. Uh, hi, everyone. I do enjoy hearing different versions of my uh, last name's pronunciation. You did just great. Oh, fantastic. Well, we'll see. Well, maybe I will, I'll do a supercut on the podcast of the different variations that I'll use as you keep reappearing on the podcast. Um, so uh, you were previously part of the uh, Lithuanian government. Give us a bit of a background on you and what your role was in the Lithuanian government. Mm -hmm. My background throughout my life was always uh, public affairs and politics. I have a BA and MA in political science. And over the years, I worked as a um, political campaign manager, a public sector employee, a lobbyist. And my last position was a deputy minister at the Ministry uh, of uh, Economy and Innovation of Lithuania, where I was responsible for digital innovation uh, policy areas, also coordinating uh, different uh, digital innovation registry companies, uh, state companies, uh, board members, and so on. So I've seen policy making uh, from very different sides, from within and outside. Um, and I do understand the struggles of both business and policy makers sometimes. Um, at the ministry, uh, I was... Uh, leading to biggest reforms, uh, one being innovation uh, reform uh, of Lithuania. We've managed to revamp our institutional picture a lot. Uh, we've, we've been following business Finland example in Lithuania. We've managed to achieve certain tangible results in our innovation standing of Lithuania. I still, uh, I still say we when talking about the Ministry of Economy and Innovation, but them uh, or us, uh, Lithuania has managed to achieve these results. And in digital, I was responsible for a variety of topics, but uh, probably the breakthrough moment was a change in Lithuania legislation where uh, we created a legal basis for hybrid uh, da uh, state data storage and management until our... our this government's term, we could only use state-managed uh, data centers. 
And uh, with the reform and with the changes, we have uh, adopted uh, the private uh, the private sector uh, to uh, to uh, to to use for our uh, data storage. So uh, yeah, I I. So, so just to follow up on this, I, I, what, what I think is so interesting, and I think, I mean, it, the, the, the three Baltic countries are all attempting uh, to coin themselves as, as digital uh, innovators. And I mean, Estonia particularly has, a, has, a, has an international brand in that. And I think Lithuania is, is trying to, to follow a, a model in that. And, and, and sort of what are the challenges? Because, you know, I'm from a even much smaller country than yours, Luxembourg. And one of the big challenges of Luxembourg is always to put the country on the map on which some of it, it doesn't even appear. Uh, was that one of the big challenges for you as well, to put Lithuania on the map for uh, whether it's, uh, you know, large international companies to, to see sort of the benefits of, of investing, of being present in that market or operating out of it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, coming from a small country, uh, we... I mean, everybody who comes from a small country, uh, they do realize the pluses and minuses. The minus is uh, a relatively small market. The plus is that all the startup scene and all the self-starting people, self-made people always start and think about the global market rather than thinking about their own. So that's a huge plus. And most of Lithuanian companies uh, who are very well known worldwide, our two unicorns, uh, uh, Nord Security, NordVPN uh, is one of their brands, and as well as Vinted, they always go for global markets, and that's the plus. But of course, um, you know, knowing the public sector's uh, realities and kitchen, I think uh, the issues and the problems are very similar in uh, many countries. Um, we do have national interests and national strategies to promote our most innovative sectors, including ICT. But at the same time, we have global standards. We have uh, the European policies affecting uh, affecting our plants uh, heavily. Um, policies usually have good intentions, but uh, the bureaucracy or the public sector is not necessarily able to keep up. Uh, with the implementation, which uh, often results either in gold plating, huge administrative burden for business and the public sector itself, uh, which is um, very apparent in the EU and uh, in countries like Lithuania and probably Luxembourg, uh, uh, which have a sort of limited appetite for expansion of public sector, uh, the public sector is seeing a uh, huge, uh, huge uh, challenges and huge issues when uh, it comes to implementation of all the digital reg- regulations and directives coming their way. Um, I often think that uh, somehow I think in Europe we have forgotten completely the golden rule, one in, one out, when it comes to regulation. Um, and that's one of the burden. Uh, another point is innovation promotion policies. Um, there is a good uh, Lithuanian saying, um, oaks do not grow in greenhouses. Uh, the same could be applied to innovation promotion uh, because breakthrough innovation cannot appear scale and become globally accepted in a heavily regulated environment where the core angle is financial incentives, which themselves have a huge administrative burden 
preventing the startups or the companies from risking, taking risks and achieving something. So I, I was talking from a national standpoint, coming from a global standpoint, of course, the Baltic states and the Central Eastern European region in itself has always had a very balanced view when it comes to global tech regulation. I think the course is continuing and uh, will continue. Um, and um, these countries um, very often want to see what is uh, what are the next steps and what are the effects of regulation. I have a lot of thoughts about the the ex post analysis of all the regulations that uh, come our way in Europe and uh, beyond, but uh, that's maybe for another another topic. Yeah, I I, I I think what you say about sort of the regulatory state is is, is very interesting and also how it relates to small countries. I mean, former mm -hmm. uh, president of the European Commission, Jean-Claude Juncker, incidentally from Luxembourg, you know, I mean, his tagline was always big, being big on the big things and small on the small things and sort of the, the smart regulation aspect that um, sometimes might get lost uh, maybe in the current commission and, 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 and who knows what it's going to look like in the, in, in the, in the next one. Um, and that brings me to the issue and it's sort of you alluded to it. Um, how do you see your role at, at Consumer Choice Center going forward? What is sort of the what are the um, the points you're trying to hammer home? What are what, how, how do you see um, your, your your role develop? What what, what important messaging uh, do we need to send to to policymakers and regulators on digital policy in Europe? Mm -hmm. Well, I think the, the messages are very clear and they are important for a lot of countries. Um, first of all, inclusive, transparent and uh, inclusive, again, exposed analysis of policies aimed to regulate the most innovative sectors. Um, we have to be more open and more honest about things that work and don't um, and uh, different, different sectors have to be more involved. And it's a problem not only from the side of bureaucracy, but from the side of business as well. Business needs to invest in long-term policy uh, making or um, sharing ideas with policymakers. We businesses have seen over the past term of the European Commission and previous terms, I'm sure as well, that last-minute uh, attempts to share their opinions or their experience from countries which share similar regulation always come too late. And uh, we cannot criticize bureaucrats, or if you will, or public sector employees alone. Sometimes the timeline is off and, you know, the good ideas and good, uh, good uh, remarks come way too late. Um, another another thing where I see my role is, of course, uh, matching and mapping uh, the initiatives and uh, uh, reforms and ideas that appear in different countries and uh, make sure the know-how on the best and worst practices um, are shared between countries. I've seen myself working as a deputy minister previously. Uh, we were launching reforms there were countries who have launched them for five years ago. We would have loved to have open and honest communication about the pros and cons of these reforms in order to avoid uh, inventing the wheel and repeating the same mistakes. 
And yeah, and um, of course, the innovative part is an honest look in the in the mirror, evaluating the output of our innovation promotion policies and how innovation regulation or regulation of the most innovative sectors is affecting our potential. I think, especially in Europe, it's important because if 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 politicians and if public sector is taking global innovation very seriously, at least in Europe. We really have to um, count our wins and losses and see where we're at. And uh, yeah, so these are the three major areas. Um, uh, we have had a lot of new regulatory measures coming from the European Commission over the past term. Um, there will be huge um, focus on how member states, countries, individual countries are implementing these reforms. I've mentioned before gold plating. Lithuania, for example, is one of the countries where we are more stricter in implementing than the regulation or the director itself is. So it's very important to follow these processes and, um, and make sure that, uh, that the implementation part is smooth. Oh, that is um, certainly a very important part. And as we're getting to the end um, of this segment, uh, I wanted to throw a question your way that's going to try and rip you out of your uh, previous, uh, uh, the things you've previously learned on your job of being as diplomatic as you can and uh, re retain information. And also an impossible question that you won't be able to answer fully, which I like to ask. Um, Currently, when we look at the landscape of, of the big digital giants that everyone keeps talking about, um, very few of them are European. I mean, I think except from Spotify and Zalando in the digital space, there are very few uh, European companies that play on the big leagues. Would you say that if Europe made the right reforms that there could be the thing that everyone in Brussels talks about, a European Silicon Valley, do we have the capacity if we only make the right reforms to get to a place where Europe plays in that big league in the same way the US does? I would like to say yes, uh, if only Europeans got rid of wishful thinking at times uh, and at the same time understood that uh, when it comes to um, tech regulation, if you will, or digital regulation, digital policy, the intents are always very good. But risk management means not only risk prevention, but also risk taking or calculated risk taking. Innovation can only appear on the soil where this risk is tolerated and um, experimentation of sorts is tolerated. Uh, I will get back to my previous statement, oaks do not growing greenhouses. Therefore, uh, we have to get rid of the greenhouse and make sure there's enough sun and soil available. And sometimes businesses are innovative. Startupers are innovative. There are many startups that hail from Europe but end up in Silicon Valley only for a reason, not only financial uh, reasons and, and the market. So if only we're, we were honest, uh, to ourselves uh, we have to take a look an honest uh, look uh, in the mirror and evaluate ourselves and be open about it transparency openness that's all incredibly important and we'll get to hear more from you as we continue Egle where can people follow you on social media I'm almost everywhere except for TikTok 
fantastic <laughs> neither are we actually so uh, not not uh, i mean at least in my case not downloading chinese spyware on my phone but people can choose that as they as they wish even though i would extend a warning uh fantastic we'll be putting the links to all of that uh in the description of this podcast thank you so much for joining the consumer podcast we'll have you back and uh yeah have a good one thank you thank you and that concludes this week's episode of Consumer. Thank you so much for listening. You can follow Consumer Choice Center on X at Consumer Choice C and, of course, on all the social media platforms. You can also follow me for a change at Wordsbill on uh, Twitter. All the links in the description. As always, I'm your host, Bill Wirtz, and I'll see you Thursday. You have to learn to pace yourself. Pressure. You just like everybody else. Pressure. You won't.